This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. Today, I wanted to, to actually do a discussion, not just a talk. Um, I, was, I was reading this article in the New York Times about um, food as really as a sacred vehicle, as a, as a, as a way to connect with the divine, if you will. And uh, they, were, they were saying how in Thailand, um, strawberry fanta is the, the offering of choice, and it's what's offered to the spirits. And so there's all these homemade shrines, you know, all over different places in the city. So if you go to a restaurant, if you go to somebody's house, if you go to a laundromat, you know, there'd be these little shrines, and you'll always see a bottle of strawberry Fanta with a straw poking out of it. And that is an offering for the spirits. And then somebody wrote in the comments to the article that after you offer it, you actually drink it and to, to make to, to become, in a way, those, those spirits. And I thought that was very interesting. It, it made me think, of course, of the Eucharist, right, in, in Christianity, and particularly in Catholicism, which is um, thought to be that you're actually taking in the body of, of Christ. And I don't remember if I've told the, the group this story, but um, I, I grew up, I, I did grow up Catholic, in a very unorthodox way. My mother had a very um, unusual and very personal uh, way of, of both looking at religion herself and, and teaching us. And um, at a certain point, she, she asked us, my brother and I, what we were learning in catechism. We came back from school one day, and whatever we said, she was um, horrified and decided that she was going to teach us herself. And so for about a year, the two of us, the three of us, because my brother was there, would meet to um, read an illustrated Bible. And um, she would read, a, a, we would take turns reading aloud the stories and then we would discuss them. And, and I remember my mother was particularly taken with uh, the story of Jesus walking over the water. And I think I did, talk about this part. It was, it was Dido's most um, uh, sold talk, Jesus Walks on Water. Um, and my mother, you know, whenever she would tell that story, there was something in her voice that I interpreted as her saying, imagine what is possible if this is possible. And years later, and I know I did tell you this, years later when I was 13, she said to me, you know, you can do whatever you want, as long as you think it's right, it's the right thing to do, even if I disagree with you. And she does, she taught me to walk on water, I feel. And um, after about a year of doing these, these 
talks. She she told my brother. So my brother was eleven. Uh, my brother was nine at the time. I was eleven. Um, and she said, "Okay, you're ready to do your first communion." But even the priest didn't know that we were doing it. I feel like I have told this story, have I not? Like we were no. Look, we, we were doing it incognito, in, in a way. I mean, the priest didn't even know it was our first time. So she didn't tell anybody. And in Mexico, it's normally a big deal. You know, you have a party, you wear gloves, you wear the dress, you have a brunch afterwards, you have a little pendant. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's, I mean, it's a rite of passage. She didn't tell anybody. She didn't tell our grandparents who were furious afterwards. And she said, this is between you and God. And so this is what's going to happen. This is what the priest is going to say. This is what you do. And, and this is what it means. And so we went, we had a weekend house, my brother, that we would go to every, pretty much every weekend, every vacation. And so we're wearing shorts and a t-shirt. I was wearing this leopard print um, Gatsby cap that I thought to take off because I thought it wasn't appropriate in church. But we're wearing shorts and a t-shirt. And my brother and I, you know, we're just, you know, walking up to the altar like it's, you know, nothing. And the priest says, the body of Christ. And, uh, and in Mexico, you don't take it in your hand. You, you, you know, put your mouth <laughs> forward and they place it on your tongue and then you, you walk away. I said, amen, and I walked away. And it transformed me. I was 11 and it transformed me. I actually felt... I think in my, you know, in my innocence or whatever, that I had taken the, the body of Christ. And something happened. And um, afterwards, you know, a couple of days later, my uncle said, you know, what happened? You're glowing. And I didn't know what to say. It's like, I ate Christ. I mean, what do you say? So I didn't say anything. But um, it really changed me. And and not even because it was it was. Christ specifically, because I didn't actually have a relationship, and it, it, I, there's many aspects of the story that I just don't believe in. It, it was it was something about that act, right, of taking, you know, in this in this case, a wafer, taking a, a symbolically a piece of bread, and it becoming something else. And at 11, I believed it. I believed that that's what had happened, and it transformed me. And I was reading that in, in, so of course there is, the, there is that practice. And in Tanzania, um, they do a, a, also a, a different ritual in which they write verses of the Quran in, in a saffron colored ink on a plate. And then they put water, a little bit of water in it. And then they give the, the, the drink to people who are sick. So they're, they're quite literally drinking the Quran. And, you know, many years later, um, I was in Brooklyn, in fact, and I just, I had an encounter with somebody on the street that reminded me, that reminded me of the, the, um, the meaning of the word Eucharist in, in, in uh, Greek, Eucharistia is thanksgiving. And so I was thinking of all of this, right? And I was thinking of our, our relationship with food and I was thinking how it is so fraught for so many of us right, in our culture. It is the opposite of sacred. 
and it is it is even um it goes beyond just the nutriment that it is meant you know to to be certainly for body for our being for our minds and it becomes something else right it might become comfort it might become solace companionship it might become a buffer right when we're overstimulated or a way to an upper you know when we're feeling depressed in some way food as a sign of wealth as a sign of privilege and you know when when you when you um, are able you know to to indulge in very expensive meals as happened so much in new york city and the the woman who wrote the article was talking about how now it uh, a, a form of religion is going out to eat right you go out to a michelin um, ranked restaurant and how it's become about so many other things and of course in our own tradition um, food and the taking of food and the preparing of food is such a um, um, I mean it is a sacred event it is a sacred activity and and I can I, I want to talk a little bit about that in a moment but I actually would like to first start by asking you if you take a moment, if you could, if you could describe in a few words, what is your own relationship with food? How would you describe that? Yes, Brian. <clears throat> um, so I'll say, I'll just throw out a few things. I don't, I would need some time to to really think about my relationship with food. Um, and I can start with simple, simply the fact that I enjoy food. There's not much food that I don't like to eat. Um, so I, so it's been really easy for me to eat in my life. You know, uh, I know that, pe you know, I feel, so I feel grateful that I, I don't have sort of the some people have strong likes and dislikes. Some people have allergies or sensitivities. I've been really fortunate not to have, you know, not to have any of that in my life. Um, so I've had, I've had an easy relationship with food in that way. Although over the past decade or so, I've become much more conscious about what I eat and what I buy. And um, for lots of different, for, you know, for a number of different reasons. Um, and from the environmental reasons to compassion for animals and all those things. And yet I find that, so I, so I eat, I very much eat one way at when I'm preparing food for myself. Um, and yet I find that the most rewarding thing is being grateful for food that's put in front of me. So when I go somewhere and someone serves food, you know, someone invites last weekend, we went to uh, uh, in-laws, house for dinner and when people provide when people offer food make food for me that that feels and to be to take it graciously no matter what it is feels like that sort of that that feels there's something that feels really right about that that aspect of consuming food for me yeah. so those yeah. sort of first thoughts okay yes marguerite well, it, I think it's my hobby to cook. It's my craft. It's my art form. And, and that is not a good thing because then I do it a lot and I enjoy it. I love sharing it. 
I do love to have dinner parties. I love to be creative with it. I love leftovers. And with, as Brian said, I was invited out for dinner and I, I had to say to them, I feel like I'm on vacation. This is a vacation, just a dinner at your house. It was wonderful. But I had been with Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, group a lot or his practice. So we do silent meal practices. And I've led some silent meal practices where you chew 25 or 30 times, masticate that food before you swallow it. You feel it all over your mouth. It's amazing. You try to feel it as far down as you can in your esophagus. And I think it's sort of like a pretty um, wide gap, a big gap that, you know, I, I, I don't do that a lot, but I can do that. And I teach people to do that. And it is remarkable when you, look at a raisin, a piece of chocolate, and you smell it, taste it, feel it, put it all over your mouth, and then you put it in, eat it slowly. It's just, it's, you taste it so much more. It's, uh, it's almost, it's really kind of spectacular, but I don't do it that often. I, sometimes I eat standing up. I think I am so uh, far gone in terms of food because eating standing up, what do you do? Just kind of wolf it down. Uh, so anyhow, food is important. I've been sick and I've lost five pounds and decided, well, maybe I can eat less and maybe food isn't that important. So um, anyhow. Uh, okay, can I ask, you started off by saying food is my hobby, food is my craft. I love to cook. I love to feed other people. So why do you eat standing up? Uh, once in a while, I don't know. I don't, I'm trying to understand myself or I'm trying to reflect on myself. Why do I, why do I chew, gulp it down? And yet I can do 35 chews before I swallow. Why, why do I do that? Wide range of eating. Why do I, I don't know. I'll take that into my next meditation. I'll talk to you about it the next time we meet. Why do I? In fact, it was during a retreat at the monastery at home, and we we're supposed to do orioki. And I I couldn't get over the fact that I was standing up and eating. I, maybe it's defiance. It's like not following a rule. I kind of have that behavior pattern of being defiant. So maybe it's a rebellious or defiant, or I'll be darned, that's built into me, or I mean that I've allowed to be built into me. That's that's a that's a good one to to notice. I I, I have that. I have that. I, I don't know that if it's, um, I don't do it, you know, by, by eating standing up, but, but that, that, that sense of I will defy the rule, I think that's a really good one to, to notice mm -hmm. because also, I mean, it's just you at home, right? Right. Or, right. Who are you defying? <laughs> I don't know, the rules of Oriochi or something. And, you know, but some other times I do too when I'm standing up and I, I don't, when I have dinner parties, it's an event and it's one course, two courses. It's just, it can be so different than just gobbling up food. So I go from gobble to relax and enjoy to counting and masticating my food and trying to follow it down my esophagus. I mean, that's a trip. It's, it's just strange. So, and, but anyhow. And, and I'm sorry, when do you do that? You do that with your group, with the technology? Yes, I do. We, we tried it. Well, when we were meeting in person, we would do that. Oh. So we would have, I would pass out a little bag that had an, a raisin, a little piece of chocolate, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, smell it, feel it mm -hmm. on your lips, put it in your mouth, 
Roll it around, under your tongue, over your tongue, around your gums. It's, it's, a, it's a terrific ex experience of mindfulness. And then you chew, 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 and don't swallow it until they tell you you can swallow it. So it's the slowest eating ever. And so I go from the fastest eating to the slowest eating. So I, get, I guess I have a terrific relationship with food. I've got it on all levels. But I, did, I don't want it to be that way so much. I wasn't, wish it wasn't quite so important. And, uh, you know, but anyhow, it's enough, everybody. Thank you. Adam. Well, you know, first, one thing that, that Brian said just reminded me of something, the, you know, the idea of gratefully accepting what you're, what you're given. I remember a long time ago reading, you know, Aitken Roshi saying that he, I think he was a vegetarian, but he just would eat whatever was, you know, if it was meat or whatever, he just, cause he just thought that's, you know, not the rudeness, but that it, he was breaking the precepts by, by insulting the person who was giving yeah. him food and I um that got me into a little, I mean a little bit of tr not trouble but I uh, <clears throat> I went over to a friend of mine's house and she was having people over and, and she was had pork and I don't really I don't eat pork not religious reasons not important why but I ate it and <clears throat> I said wow it's delicious and it it started a cycle of whenever she when she invited just me over for dinner she's like I made your favorite and I it finally the fourth time I had to say I look I don't really eat pork but um uh but by that time it was okay uh the, the, but the thing that I think about food in general though is I do I love cooking and I and I realized that for me it was when I discovered that I could cook it was a way of realizing that <clears throat> I wasn't trapped by the story of my family because neither of my parents could cook, cook a thing. They just couldn't cook and um, never did. I mean, I think my mother for a while sort of cooked, but really, I mean, that was not, and I discovered I could cook and I, and I discovered that that was a way of giving, sharing with other people and giving love to other people and it being about me, not about, not about just what I'd been taught. It was about something that I just pulled out of thin air because it just, it wasn't there. It was not part of the culture of my house. Um, so it, for some reason it has, I mean, for that reason, it has a, uh, it, it feels important to me and feel, and it gives me, tremendous pleasure and satisfaction to, I don't think of food as love, but I think of the act of making food for other people as, as a form of showing love and care. And, um, it got a little bit tested at the, you know, throughout the pandemic when I was just night after night, after night, after night of cooking, but I, I but I still have not, uh, it has, it's still basically undiminished at this point that, so that's. Well, and I think what you're saying points to why uh, a bottle of Fanta can be a, a sacred offering, right? Because food isn't just about the physical food in front of us. It actually does have meaning and it has history and it has karma. And um, 
if that weren't true, I mean, really all liturgy would be, would be empty. Right? So, so there's the act of eating just to nourish your body from a biological or physiological perspective. But of course, there's everything that comes with that. And, you know, I've said in the past how for us, you know, ryoki, the, the, the ceremony of, of eating a meal, is pointing to the fact that you have to take life in order to support your own life. And whether it's a cow or uh, a cabbage, it is still life. And, you know, in the, in the, there was an Inuit um, elder that said to Nud Rasmussen, you know, the, the explorer, he said, the greatest peril of life lies in the fact that human food consists entirely of souls. Now, we don't speak of a soul in Buddhism, but you could, you could, you could say that it consists entirely of life. So that, that raisin that Marguerite is alluding to, you know, that's a, that's a core mindful eating practice, you know, in the Thich Nhat Hanh, in the order of interbeing. And he would speak of not just of, of the, the raisin, the actual dried, you know, grape, but of the raisin containing the sun and, you know, the, the, the water and the earth and, you know, that all of the elements are in this tiny little morsel of food. And what is it like when you know that, as opposed to when you forget? Because if you think of, you know, addictions, right, that have to do with food, any other addiction, alcohol, tobacco, you know, drugs, you don't need them. I mean, your body may feel otherwise, but you don't need them to survive. We need to eat. And so it's one of the, I, I think, one of the most challenging um, relationships you know when somebody has a conflictive relationship with food because we still need to eat you can't stop so so alexandra and on that note <laughs> um i've had a very uh divisive relationship with food um i have made my peace with food and um and i eat it i um, I find the chanting really um, has developed um, a tremendous amount of gratitude for all that goes into getting that food on my plate. Um, and as Brian was saying, when you receive food, but here's the thing is I have very diminished taste buds, so I don't actually really taste much. I could taste bitter and sweet um, but I don't really taste the food. So when I do go out, because I was invited out today, um, is I, I express my gratitude um, for their willingness to cook for me. It's not the food. I, they don't know that. They, you know, I, I, enjoy, I, I know to how to look like I'm enjoying food. I know this sounds crazy, but I know how to look like I'm enjoying food because I'm enjoying everything else that's going around it. Uh, but the fact is, is that I can't actually taste it. And this piece of something is just the same as eating a, you know, dictionary or something. So, um, <laughs> so for me, food is what I need to continue living. And that's about it. Yes. 
Um, yeah, it's it's a sore spot in my life, I would say. Um, I, for, uh, for many years, had an eating disorder, a bouquet of eating disorders. Uh, for about 14 years, it was pretty serious, I would say. And then I was, I, so I've been in recovery for about also 13 or 14 years. Um, but it doesn't, when I think about, I would say my relationship with food is somewhere between like neutral and very fraught, (laughs) depending on the day. Um, and sometimes it feels like something that's kind of receded in my life. And then, um, being pregnant brought a lot of those issues back to the fore, not only because of physical changes, which was actually not so much a big deal. I mean, uh, appearance changes, I mean, but because it was just a very eating was a very complicated dynamic process. (laughs) Like, and the first trimester I was very ill. And so there was like this bizarre list of the only foods that I could consume without being sick, which was like string cheese and like a kind of very dry cereal. (laughs) And then for a while it was fine. And then in the end of pregnancy, I could only eat like so much without, it was like a whole situation. And so that brought back a lot of that difficulty, but I do often, one of the things that's most at the fore or the most tangible when I think about like what would liberation really look like in my day-to-day life immediately I think I would be liberated from all that food craziness (laughs) like I wouldn't feel dragged from one meal to the next or from from one uh concern about food to the next so it's very present in my life in that way I do feel sometimes bound by it yeah. Yes, I was there. I was there for a long time. And um, there was one day that I was walking up the hill from the monastery to my cabin. And I remember feeling such desperation about this specifically, the amount of time that I spent obsessing about food and you know i i dealt with it by exercising maniacally and um just the amount of time that i spent and i remember thinking what would i do with my mind what would i do with all this energy and this focus if i didn't have to think about food and i felt so desperate that i quite literally wanted to to, like hit my head against a tree and soon after i was a server and and i had all of these various um intestinal problems nobody really knew what it was Uh, but it it had gone to a point where it was just very difficult to eat really anything and one day i was a server for orioki and i was watching my teacher who was at the front of the zendo eating and who picks up his his bowl and picks up his spoon and just is, is having lunch. And I remember thinking he is completely present to each of these, for each of these uh, bites, 
And all of a sudden I thought to myself, I can do that. I can do that. And I went downstairs right in that moment. I went downstairs, took the medicine that they'd given me for gastritis, put it in the trash and never touched it again. And I just made a vow that I would eat orioki with every meal, regardless of whether it was formal or not. And I taught myself essentially how to identify hunger again, actual hunger, physical hunger, right? As opposed to loneliness, as opposed to a million other kinds of craving. And I taught myself how to look at a plate of food and think, yeah, that's probably enough, right? To, to, to see visually how much food do I need? And of course, as you know, orioki means just the right amount. So I had to learn how to distinguish when I had had enough food again. And it took me, I think it was about two years of just doing, you know, I was fortunate that I was at the monastery. And so really I could practice this every meal. And then one day I'm standing by the bread table. And I think all of you here have been to the monastery. So, you know, <laughs> the hub that is the bread table. Uh, there was somebody actually did a, a, an art practice about that and she sped it up. <laughs> it was very funny because, you know, you have these, you know, groups of supposedly calm Zen practitioners who are just like on the bread table, particularly during Sashin, you know, during retreats. And so I'm standing by the bread table and I'm thinking I would have a little dessert, you know, my piece of bread with peanut butter. And all of a sudden it hits me. I don't remember when was the last time I thought about food. And exactly what I thought, just to your point, was this is liberation. The beginning of it, right? A, a, a humble form of it. But I thought this is liberation. So I hear you. Um, Liz. I have a decent relationship with food. Um, luckily, I have not struggled with, with eating disorder, although I have struggled with some addiction. I've been not drinking for 26 days, which feels really good. And uh, so I've been actually thinking about mindful eating as well. Um, because I'm not, I'm kind of letting myself eat whatever right now, which is, <laughs> I'm usually a little, uh, I don't know, discipl more disciplined. For instance, I made a um, banana bread yesterday, and my kids and I have been eating it over the last two days, so I've had a lot of banana bread, but anyway, it, generally in my life, I, I, I have considered food to be um, something that when I eat food that's healthy and life-giving, that I, it gives me that. So I've had that in just sort of naturally in my mind for a long, long time. Um, I've tried many different diets, vegetarian, vegan, and now I just consider myself a healthy eater um, generally. Um, and I've belonged to uh, food co-ops when I lived in Brooklyn and um, 
sustainable agriculture farms here in um, the Hudson Valley. And I've raised my kids to going to the farm and learning about food and where it comes from. And it's a wonderful part of their childhood. And, and my daughter thanks me now for teaching her so much about food and she knows how to eat healthy. You know, it's not a struggle for her. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, I was telling to say a couple weeks ago that I'd like to pick up uh, Jan Chosen Bay's book, Mindful Eating and, and start reading that. Um, so that, that is something um, on my list of things to do. And, and you brought up, I mean, you suggested us doing Oriyoki at some point. That's because, right. Uh -huh. Yeah, and we would just have to do a simplified version, right? We, because if we don't have the bowls, but but we could. I mean, that's what I did for all those years. I mean, I wasn't using the bowls every meal, so mm. um, it would be nice to. In fact, it would be nice to do a class or to do a to do a class on it. Yeah. Mm. Um, Sarah. Uh, I think my relationship with food overall is pretty healthy, um, uh, no disordered eating. But the, something I want to mention, though, is the phenomenon of um, like a special treat. Um, and that's a kind of vocabulary that I hear a lot around my niece and nephew who are five and two, the promise of a special treat that might be in their future if you know they do xyz and then you know my nephew says but will it be a very special treat um you know and usually this is like a cookie or you know gummy bear something it's sugar you know the sweet special treat and i have a memory of being i don't know how old i was but um old enough that i knew what i wanted and being in the kitchen i, I don't know i was probably five or six in the kitchen of the house where i grew up and by myself, I pulled the stool over so that I could climb up to reach the cabinet that had the box of cookies. And, you know, I had, I have this visual, you know, one arm reaching up into the cabinet. And then I hear my father's voice, Sarah. <laughs> and so, you know, turn around like, oh no, caught completely caught red-handed and the feeling of like embarrassment and I just wanted another cookie one wasn't enough I guess so I had to go back and get another cookie so you know I, I definitely there's an aspect to my psyche where food is something that's a comfort a reward um a special you can find these special treats and also something that like you can be a little sneaky about and like get you know get away with things a little bit um, what else did I want to say? Oh, a few years ago, I did one of these like elimination protocol things, just mostly out of like curiosity. And I felt like I had gotten into kind of a rut, like I hadn't been cooking very regularly. So I wanted to do something that would just get me back in the kitchen. Um, and I really, I mean, I, I learned a lot about the way my body responds to different things. I don't have any like severe allergies, but, um, there's just like an endless amount of knowledge that can be gained about what different foods do to your particular system. I think it's really interesting. Um, I wish I was more attuned. I would like to be more um, mindful and you know thoughtful about 
um, what, what kind of nutrition my body really needs because um, it changes, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, right view, right, the, 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 the first of the eight factors in the Eightfold Path includes understanding the Four Noble Truths, but also understanding nutriment. And of course, that has that that means everything, anything that we take in that nourishes us in some way. And of course, that's food, but also we've talked about this, you know, so what we take visually, what we take, um, you know, in terms of media, etc. And it's interesting to me that in the sutras, like that far back, the, the Buddha was already thinking about this is like, what do we what do we consume? Right? What do we take in and how does it nourish us? Does it nourish right? or does it harm? And, you know, one thing that struck me, Sarah, what you were saying is that how early then you, you learn to associate food with, you know, that sneakiness that you talk about, that rebelliousness, the, and then the, the, the guilt or the shame of, you know, caught in the act. I mean, how, how early it becomes about more than just food and even you know so with your with your nephew and in in niece you know so the special treat so it's a reward and the reward is sugar and the reward is going to make you feel good but it's also going to make you not feel so great and so again very early on you 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 develop this conflicted relationship with something that <laughs> in one sense it's so it's so natural and so and so life-giving and so i'm curious you know here that we we have actually a lot of parents, um, those of you who have kids that are, that are grown, how you handle it, and then those of you who are newer parents, how will you navigate this? Uh, yes, Adam. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we, this is, I mean, we're just, Katie and I are just now coming to this, you know, this point and I, and we, we both don't want, you know, want to do our best to not create issues, you know, around food or, 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 or problems around food. And um, so we're, we're, we're about to try something which, which is called baby-led weaning, which is just essentially taking cues from the baby and offering foods when she can sit by herself and take them and put them into her own mouth, not doing, here's the, not ever getting into the expectation of why are you, come on, the airplane's coming into the, the, the to not, to trust, you know, to trust our daughter that she will know what to do and that she will take what she wants. And, and, you know, she'll also still be breastfeeding. She's not going to be, you know, we're not going to leave her to start. I mean, but to not, to not say, here's how much you need to eat, finish this, you know, come on, give me a clean plate. Then you can have it. I, I think what we're, what we want to do is to trust. I mean, talk again, maybe who knows, talk to us in a year, but that's the, is to trust her and I, which is, you know, what has been kind of guiding us thus far and so far working. She's, she, she knows what to do. I mean, she also might know things, I mean, want to do things that you have to stop her from doing, but, uh, 
you know, had to start, had to plug up, you know, <clears throat> all the plugs in the house, all the sockets now have protectors, you know, and we now have to start taking up the, our, the dog's bowls because she'll either try to put her hand in, into a dirty bowl or she could drown in the water. I mean, she just won't, you know, she's all over everything. So it doesn't mean, I don't mean like go do what you want, but to create, you know, boundaries and trust and trust. And um, that's, so that's, that's. And this is called what? Baby led weaning. Baby led. Yes. Okay. And there are books and things. So, I mean, we're not just, we're not just, coming up with our own kooky way of doing things. I mean, um, right. yes, Brian. So my son was raised in two houses, ours and his mother's, and food was very different in, in each house. And so, and when, when food and other things that were like that, where he had very, very different experiences, I kind of felt like it wasn't a good place to wasn't a good place to be too involved um, in in the way that I'm having a hard time coming up with the the right words. Um, I didn't want to overreact to what was happening in his his house with his mom in a way um, to try to to try to compensate for the way that I would like things to be. So there were certain things that I just really let him let him lead the way on. And so I, I very much didn't get involved with what Sam ate or, or teach him much about eating. Um, I just sort of fed him what he wanted and what he liked. And he, 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 it was, I was fortunate his, his diet was very, his preferences were very limited, but fortunately there were enough healthier things in the mix that I felt okay with what he was eating in general. Um, so, but I also continued to buy the things that I thought were, that I felt good about buying and the way that Amy and I ate what we, we, we kind of kept eating the way that we preferred to eat for, for reasons that I, you know, kind of reasons that I mentioned earlier. And it's, so it's interesting now to see the effect of uh, parenting by example, as opposed to like parenting by, you know, you're t telling, teaching, but parenting by example, because now what I'm hearing back from Sam, now that he lives alone and he has to provide his own food, what I'm hearing back from him are a lot of things that, um, that he saw um, when he's talking about what he's buying and why he's buying it and trying to eat different things um, and how he feels when he eats those things. So it, it's interesting um, and this is not not only with food, but it's interesting to start to hear from an adult child um, comments and have conversations about things that really they just witnessed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes some sometimes that is you feel good about that, and other times not so much. But that's that comes with the territory. Liz, were you going to say something? Um, with my kids, their their preferences were very different, and um, I, I have a boy and a girl, so Ella Ella was a very light eater, um, and Oscar 
almost didn't know when he was full. It was very different. Um, but yeah, I, I also try not to force food on people. I, I, as a kid, we had the clean your plate rule as well. And that I spent a lot of nights putting peas into a napkin and washing <laughs> them down the toilet, that sort of thing. But anyway, um, I don't know. I think presenting, you know, putting good food on the table and letting letting kids um, choose for themselves and is good. Also, uh, and with the sugar thing, um, uh, Ella, my first daughter, Ella was, was first. So for two years, she didn't have any sugar, which was, was pretty amazing. I remember her first ice cream cone at age two. And then the second Oscar, it came a lot sooner because <laughs> it was more in the mix at that point. But um, anyway, it's uh, it's an adventure and kids can be very different. Um, yeah. Well, you know, a couple of you mentioned, you know, the gratitude at having somebody offer you a meal, right? Somebody prepare a meal. I think, um, you know, not having kids myself, right? But just, you know, kind of my own experience and actually seeing it with, uh, kids who were, um, you know, who would come to the monastery and we would do Arioki with them. You know, the, the sense of infusing this sense of gratitude, of appreciation of the 72 labors that bring us the food, you know, that we eat um, meal after meal. There's something that happens, you know, so when I think of what is, you know, what are the elements that, that, that kind of infuse the food with that sacredness, I think that's probably the first one, you know, the, the, the sense that this doesn't, this isn't just, um, I'm not just entitled to this, you know, and this doesn't, this doesn't just appear magically, but that there's, that there's something, there's a whole trail, there's a whole series of lives, many, many, many lives to bring a single dish, you know, to, to my, to my table. Um, I, I wonder if, if we had to pick, you know, a single thing that would, that would make a difference if that wouldn't be it, right? Even more than what the food is itself, but this, this sense of, well, the sense of, of having, you know, so there's that plate in front of you. I mean, there's the whole universe, just as we would talk to the kids about the altar, right? And having the, the four elements or the fifth, fifth, five elements, if you count space, are on the altar, that it's a, it's a microcosm. Right of of the whole universe, I mean it's the same, the same right with a plate of food in front of us. Um, and I think of the many many times when I eat in a way that does not honor the sacredness of, of that food. You know, it's because it's when I forget. It's when I'm just eating mindlessly, where I'm just, you know, putting food in me just to get to the next thing. So so. You know, I think this, this, the sense of the sacredness of it, I mean, so much of it is simply that we're, that we're paying attention and, and, and we're, 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 we're handling food with a kind of reverence that it does actually deserve. So, uh, Mina? Sorry, joining on my phone, end of semester, driving back. Um, 
I just, uh, it's wonderful to listen, just to listen. And uh, yeah, as a parent, the whole relationship with food changes. I think I've been blessed that one of my, one of my non-conflictual relationships in life is with food. <laughs> and um, I actually do credit my mother and my grandmother who really cooked very healthfully and you know they shaped our they shaped our um perception of what was a treat so for us a treat was like fresh strawberries so you know we didn't have like sweets we didn't have store my mother claimed because she's so she's raised by a first generation hungarian immigrant that she never had like a Ritz cracker until she was like in college or something like she never had any store bought goods, you know, that my grandmother made everything. Um, and, you know, while I didn't make everything, um, it, it, there, it, there is something that's passed down. I'm very conscious now of what's transgenerational because my own children know how to cook and you know and know what's healthy and I think my daughter who's also named Ella um has had you know borderline issues with eating comfort eating um but it's not the content it's 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 the way that you eat and so I, I guess I just I, I chimed in because I wanted to, I thought about France and living in France for 18 years um, at different points. But, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, do you miss France? And I say, or do you miss the food? And I say, it's not that I miss the food. It's the miss. I miss the way we eat and we you would eat. You would linger, you know, three hours over a meal. I'm sure that, you know, it's. It's the same in many many other cultures, but being like sitting around the table and sort of, for me, like it was important that people, that we sat down to eat together. And that was kind of the only thing that I was known for is like, mom wants us to sit down and, you know, sit down, no cell phones. But I think I, I also got that from, from the European and, and, French kind of sanctity of the table. I'll never forget once I was at a dinner party with some close friends, one of whom was a very, uh, very prominent publisher, a woman who was, uh, you know, very, she moved in a very glamorous world. And her husband was making, or her partner was making dinner. And we were all talking and there were some famous writers there. And and all of a sudden, um, the conversation, like her partner brought the conversation to an end because he had brought in this new dish and people were talking. It was like, stop, everyone has to focus on the food. And I just, you know, that sort of focusing on the food and not having the conversation you know, be the most important thing is, is very, um, it's very interesting because when I was a journalist, 
I worked with a lot of British journalists and you sat down and they, I don't think they even knew what they were eating. I mean, I once made dinner, like a Thanksgiving dinner and I went to great pains, you know, to make this Thanksgiving dinner in China for all these journalists. And, and the conversation was just like, they were completely oblivious. I don't think anybody said, you know, the food is delicious. And it just struck me that it's a, it really is a very culturally, you know, specific thing. Anyway, it's my ramble on that. Um, Alexandra, we're kind of running out of time, but. Oh, I just, I just wanted to mention because we were talking about with the children and then sort of in reverse. Um, so I come from a family of, of people who had dysfunctional relationships with food. So I actually have in the kitchen, like this little altar with my mother's picture and my grandmother's picture. And every day when I get up, I make coffee and I give them coffee. When I make my food, I give them food. And I have this like them healing through me because they've gone and I'm still here. And because I'm helping them heal through me, I'm healing myself. So it was just a little, little bit of a difference there. And I just wanted to share that with everybody. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think, you know, all I want to say in, in, in closing is to, is to just underline once again, you know, that there are this, these things that we do day after day, day after day, day after day. And a lot of it we do without much attention because we're in a rush, because there's so many things happening, because there's so many things seemingly pulling for our attention. And um, that it doesn't take much to, I was going to say bring out the sacredness, but I mean, it's always there. It's, it's just, it's a matter of turning toward it. And I, and I do think, you know, that as practitioners, one of our, our privileges, maybe perhaps even responsibilities is to kind of, is to bless the world, you know, as, as, as difficult as it is, as crazy as it seems at times. And I think especially now, that we have uh, the, 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 we're capable of, of bringing that blessedness out, not in any dramatic way, but simply in how we insist, you know, that we all sit down and have a meal. My mother was like that. We, we, we had to turn on the fountain. We had to play music. You couldn't answer the phone. It was, it was a thing. It created an atmosphere that made me appreciate that that whole not just the act of taking a meal but 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 what it is to break bread to, and to share bread with someone as a couple of you mentioned and it was something so simple that i grew up with and it did something and so i think it's 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 that you know i, I guess that i wanted to 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 highlight because there is you know the ceremony the very involved and very beautiful ceremony that is Orioki, but it, that it doesn't take very much for us to to bless you know to sanctify to to sacralize um, the everyday and why not why not do that for more talks to get more information about Zuisa's upcoming teachings or to join her email list 
please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.